Section forty three of the Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume three by James Boswell, Section forty three. We talked of the state of the poor in London. Johnson saunders welsh the justice who was once high constable of hoban and had the best opportunities of knowing the state of the poor told me that i underrated the number when i computed that twenty a week that is above a thousand a year died of hunger not absolutely of immediate hunger but of the wasting and other diseases which are the consequences of hunger Footnote yet according to johnson the poor in england were better provided for than in any other country of the same extent End of footnote. this happens only in so large a place as london where people are not known what we are told about the great sums got by begging is not true the trade is overstocked and you may depend upon it there are many who cannot get work a particular kind of manufacture fails those who have been used to work at it can for some time work at nothing else you meet a man begging you charge him with idleness he says i am willing to labour will you give me work i cannot why then you have no right to charge me with idleness we left mr strawn's at seven as johnson had said he intended to go to evening prayers as we walked along he complained of a little gout in his toe and said i shan't go to prayers to-night i shall go to-morrow whenever i miss church on a sunday i resolve to go another day but i do not always do it this was a fair exhibition of that vibration between pious resolutions and indolence which many of us have too often experienced i went home with him and we had a long quiet conversation i read him a letter from dr hugh blair concerning pope in writing whose life he was now employed which i shall insert as a literary curiosity Footnote. The Reverend Dr. Law, Bishop of Carlisle, in the preface to his valuable edition of Archbishop King's Essay on the Origin of Evil, mentions that the principles maintained in it had been adopted by Pope in his Essay on Man, and adds, The fact, notwithstanding such denial, Bishop Warburton's, might have been strictly verified by an unexceptionable testimony namely that of the late lord bathurst who saw the very same system of the tobiltian taken from the archbishop in lord bolingbroke's own hand lying before mr pope while he was composing his essay this is respectable evidence but that of dr blair is more direct from the fountainhead as well as more full let me add to it that of dr joseph wharton 
the late lord bathurst repeatedly assured me that he had read the whole scheme of the essay on man in the handwriting of bolingbroke and drawn up in a series of propositions which pope was to versify and illustrate boswell in the above short quotation from law are two parentheses according to paley the bishop was once impatient at the slowness of his carlyle printer why does not my book make its appearance he said to the printer my lord i am extremely sorry but we have been obliged to send to glasgow for a pound of parentheses End of footnote. to james boswell esq dear sir in the year seventeen sixty three being at london i was carried by dr john blair prebendary of westminster to dine at old lord bathurst's where we found the late mr mallet sir james porter who had been ambassador at constantinople the late dr macaulay and two or three more the conversation turning on mr pope lord bathurst told us that the essay on man was originally composed by lord bolingbroke in prose and that mr pope did no more than put it into verse that he had read lord bolingbroke's manuscript in his own handwriting and remembered well that he was at a loss whether most to admire the elegance of lord bolingbroke's prose or the beauty of mr pope's verse when lord bathurst told this mr mallet bade me attend and remember this remarkable piece of information as by the course of nature i might survive his lordship and be a witness of his having said so the conversation was indeed too remarkable to be forgotten a few days after meeting with you who were then also in london you will remember that i mentioned to you what had passed on this subject as i was much struck with this anecdote but what ascertains my recollection of it beyond doubt is that being accustomed to keep a journal of what passed when i was in london which i wrote out every evening i find the particulars of the above information just as i have now given them distinctly marked and am thence enabled to fix this conversation to have passed on friday the twenty second of april seventeen sixty three i remember also distinctly though i have not for this the authority of my journal that the conversation going on concerning mr pope i took notice of a report which had been sometimes propagated that he did not understand greek Footnote to those who censured his politics were added enemies yet more dangerous who called in question his knowledge of greek and his qualifications for a translator of homer to these he made no public opposition but in one of his letters escapes from them as well as he can at an age like his for he was not more than twenty-five with an irregular education and a course of life of which much seems to have passed in conversation it is not very likely that he overflowed with greek 
but when he felt himself deficient he sought assistance and what man of learning would refuse to help him johnson refers i think to pope's letter to addison of january the thirtieth seventeen thirteen to fourteen end of footnote lord bathurst said to me that he knew that to be false for that part of the iliad was translated by mr pope in his house in the country and that in the mornings when they assembled at breakfast mr pope used frequently to repeat with great rapture the greek lines which he had been translating and then to give them his version of them and to compare them together if these circumstances can be of any use to dr johnson you have my full liberty to give them to him i beg you will at the same time present to him my most respectful compliments with best wishes for his success and fame in all his literary undertakings i am with great respect my dearest sir your most affectionate and obliged humble servant hugh blair broughton park september the twenty first seventeen seventy nine johnson depend upon it sir this is too strongly stated pope may have had from bolingbroke the philosophic stamina of his essay and admitting this to be true lord bathurst did not intentionally falsify but the thing is not true in the latitude that blair seems to imagine we are sure that the poetical imagery which makes a great part of the poem was pope's own Footnote that those communications had been consolidated into a scheme regularly drawn and delivered to pope from whom it returned only transformed from prose to verse has been reported but can hardly be true the essay plainly appears the fabric of a poet what bolingbroke supplied could be only the first principles the order illustration and embellishments must all be popes dr wharton says that he had repeatedly heard from lord bathurst the statement recorded by dr blair End of footnote. it is amazing sir what deviations there are from precise truth in the account which is given of almost everything footnote. in defiance of censure and contempt truth is frequently violated and scarcely the most vigilant and unremitted circumspection will secure him that mixes with mankind from being hourly deceived by men of whom it can scarcely be imagined that they mean any injury to him or profit to themselves End of footnote. i told mrs thrale you have so little anxiety about truth that you never tax your memory with the exact thing now what is the use of memory to truth if one is careless of exactness lord hales's annals of scotland are very exact but they contain mere dry particulars they are to be considered as a dictionary you know such things are there and may be looked at when you please robertson paints but the misfortune is 
you are sure he does not know the people whom he paints so you cannot suppose a likeness characters should never be given by an historian unless he knew the people whom he describes or copies from those who knew them boswell why sir do people play this trick which i observe now when i look at your grate putting the shovel against it to make the fire burn johnson they play the trick but it does not make the fire burn there is a better setting the poker perpendicularly up at right angles with the grate in days of superstition they thought as it made a cross with the bars it would drive away the witch boswell by associating with you sir i am always getting an accession of wisdom but perhaps a man after knowing his own character the limited strength of his own mind should not be desirous of having too much wisdom considering quid valeant humeri how little he can carry footnote versate du quid ferere cusent quid valeant humeri weigh with care what suits your genius what your strength can bear boswell seems to be afraid of having his head made to ache again by the sense that johnson should put into it End of footnote. johnson sir be as wise as you can let a man be aliis letos sapiens sibi though pleased to see the dolphins play i mind my compass and my way you may be wise in your study in the morning and gay in company at a tavern in the evening every man is to take care of his own wisdom and his own virtue without minding too much what others think he said dodsley first mentioned to me the scheme of an english dictionary but i had long thought of it boswell you did not know what you were undertaking johnson yes sir i knew very well what i was undertaking and very well how to do it and have done it very well footnote of dryden he wrote he began even now to exercise the domination of conscious genius by recommending his own performance End of footnote. boswell an excellent climax and it has availed you in your preface you say what would it avail me in this gloom of solitude you have been agreeably mistaken in his life of milton he observes i cannot but remark a kind of respect perhaps unconsciously paid to this great man by his biographers every house in which he resided is historically mentioned as if it were an injury to neglect naming any place that he honoured by his presence i had before i read this observation been desirous of showing that respect to johnson by various inquiries finding him this evening in a very good humour i prevailed on him to give me an exact 
list of his places of residence since he entered the metropolis as an author which i subjoin in a note i mentioned to him a dispute between a friend of mine and his lady concerning conjugal infidelity which my friend had maintained was by no means so bad in the husband as in the wife johnson your friend was in the right sir between a man and his maker it is a different question but between a man and his wife a husband's infidelity is nothing they are connected by children by fortune by serious considerations of community wise married women don't trouble themselves about the infidelity in their husbands boswell to be sure there is a great difference between the offence of infidelity in a man and that of his wife johnson the difference is boundless the man imposes no bastards upon his wife here it may be questioned whether johnson was entirely in the right i suppose it will not be controverted that the difference in the degree of criminality is very great on account of consequences but still it may be maintained that independent of moral obligation infidelity is by no means a light offence in a husband because it must hurt a delicate attachment in which a mutual constancy is implied with such refined sentiments as massinger has exhibited in his play of the picture johnson probably at another time would have admitted this opinion and let it be kept in remembrance that he was very careful not to give any encouragement to irregular conduct a gentleman not adverting to the distinction made by him upon this subject supposed a case of singular perverseness in a wife and heedlessly said that then he thought a husband might do as he pleased with a safe conscience footnote if as seems to be meant the gentleman supposed the case on this occasion he must have been boswell for no one else was present with johnson End of footnote. Johnson, nay, sir, this is wild indeed, smiling. You must consider that fornication is a crime in a single man, and you cannot have more liberty by being married. He this evening expressed himself strongly against the Roman Catholics, observing, in everything in which they differ from us, they are wrong he was even against the invocation of saints in short he was in the humour of opposition having regretted to him that i had learnt little greek as is too generally the case in scotland that i had for a long time hardly applied at all to the study of that noble language and that i was desirous of being told by him what method to follow he recommended to me as easy helps sylvanus's first book of the iliad dawson's lexicon to the greek new testament and hesiod with pessori's lexicon at the end of it on tuesday october the thirteenth i dined with him at mr ramsay's with lord newhaven footnote 
Lord Newhaven was one of a creation of eighteen Irish peers in seventeen seventy six. It was a mob of nobility, wrote Horace Walpole. The king in private laughed much at the eagerness for such insignificant honours. And some other company, none of whom I recollect but a beautiful Miss Graham, a relation of his lordship's, who asked Dr. Johnson to hob or knob with her. He was flattered by such pleasing attention, and politely told her he never drank wine, but if she would drink a glass of water, he was much at her service. She accepted. Oh, sir, said Lord Newhaven, you are caught. Johnson, nay, I do not see how I am caught, but if I am caught, I don't want to get free again. If I am caught, I hope to be kept. Then, when the two glasses of water were brought, smiling placidly to the young lady, he said, Madam, let us reciprocate. Lord Newhaven and Johnson carried on an argument for some time concerning the Middlesex election. Johnson said, Parliament may be considered as bound by law as a man is bound when there is nobody to tie the knot. As it is clear that the House of Commons may expel and expel again and again, why not allow of the power to incapacitate for that Parliament, rather than have a perpetual contest kept up between Parliament and the people? Lord Newhaven took the opposite side, but respectfully said, I speak with great deference to you, Dr. Johnson. I speak to be instructed. This had its full effect on my friend. He bowed his head almost as low as the table to a complimenting nobleman, and called out, My lord, my lord, I do not desire all this ceremony. Let us tell our minds to one another quietly. After the debate was over, he said, I have got lights on the subject today which I had not before. This was a great deal from him, especially as he had written a pamphlet upon it. He observed, The House of Commons was originally not a privilege of the people, but a check for the crown on the House of Lords. I remember Henry the Eighth wanted them to do something. They hesitated in the morning, but did it in the afternoon. He told them, It is well you did, or half your heads should have been upon Temple Bar. Footnote. Henry the Eighth once threatened to cut off the head of Edward Montagu, one of the members, not the speaker, as Mr. Croker says, if he did not get a money bill passed by the next day. The bill, according to the story, was passed. Mr. P. Cunningham informed Mr. Croker that Johnson was here guilty of an anachronism, for that heads were first placed on Temple Bar in William III's time. End of footnote. But the House of Commons is no longer under the power of the Crown, and therefore must be bribed. He added, I have no delight in talking of public affairs. Footnote. 
horace walpole thus describes public affairs in february of this year the navy disgusted insurrections in scotland wales mutinous a rebellion ready to break out in ireland where fifteen thousand protestants were in arms without authority for their own defence many of them well-wishers to the americans and all so ruined they insisted on relief from parliament or were ready to throw off subjection holland pressed by france to refuse us assistance and demanding whether we would or not protect them uncertainty of the fate of the west indian islands and dread at least that spain might take part with france lord north at the same time perplexed to raise money on the loan but at eight per cent which was demanded such a position and such a prospect might have shaken the stoutest king and the ablest administration yet the king was insensible to his danger he had attained what pleased him most his own will at home his ministers were nothing but his tools everybody called them so and they proclaimed it themselves in this melancholy enumeration he passes over the american war End of, footnote. of his fellow collegian the celebrated mr george whitfield he said whitfield never drew as much attention as a mountebank does he did not draw attention by doing better than others but by doing what was strange footnote wesley himself recorded in seventeen thirty nine i have been all my life till very lately so tenacious of every point relating to decency and order that i should have thought the saving of souls almost a sin if it had not been done in a church End of footnote were astley to preach a sermon standing upon his head on a horse's back he would collect a multitude to hear him but no wise man would say he had made a better sermon for that footnote horace walpole talks of someone riding on three elephants at once like astley later he says I can almost believe that I could dance a minuet on a horse galloping full speed, like young Astley. End of footnote. I never treated Whitfield's ministry with contempt. I believe he did good. He had devoted himself to the lower classes of mankind, and among them he was of use. But when familiarity and noise claim the praise due to knowledge, art and elegance we must beat down such pretensions boswell what i have preserved of his conversation during the remainder of my stay in london at this time is only what follows i told him that when i objected to keeping company with a notorious infidel a celebrated friend of ours said to me footnote, Mr. Croker says that the celebrated friend was no doubt Burke. Burke, however, is generally described by Boswell as eminent. Moreover, Burke was not in the habit of getting drunk, as seems to have been the case with the 
celebrated friend boswell calls hamilton celebrated but then boswell and hamilton were not friends End of footnote. i do not think that men who live laxly in the world as you and i do can with propriety assume such an authority dr johnson may who is uniformly exemplary in his conduct but it is not very consistent to shun an infidel to-day and get drunk to-morrow johnson nay sir this is sad reasoning because a man cannot be right in all things is he to be right in nothing because a man sometimes gets drunk is he therefore to steal this doctrine would very soon bring a man to the gallows after all however it is a difficult question how far sincere christians should associate with the avowed enemies of religion for in the first place almost every man's mind may be more or less corrupted by evil communications secondly the world may very naturally suppose that they are not really in earnest in religion who can easily bear its opponents and thirdly if the profane find themselves quite well received by the pious one of the checks upon an open declaration of their infidelity and one of the probable chances of obliging them seriously to reflect which their being shunned would do is removed he i know not why showed upon all occasions an aversion to go to ireland where i proposed to him that we should make a tour johnson it is the last place where i should wish to travel boswell should you not like to see dublin sir johnson no sir dublin is only a worse capital boswell is not the giant's causeway worth seeing johnson worth seeing yes but not worth going to see yet he had a kindness for the irish nation and thus generously expressed himself to a gentleman from that country on the subject of an union which artful politicians have often had in view do not make an union with us sir we should unite with you only to rob you we should have robbed the scotch if they had had anything of which we could have robbed them of an acquaintance of ours his manners and everything about him though expensive were coarse he said sir you see in him vulgar prosperity a foreign minister of no very high talents who had been in his company for a considerable time quite overlooked happened luckily to mention that he had read some of his rambler in italian and admired it much this pleased him greatly he observed that the title had been translated il genio errante though i have been told it was rendered more ludicrously il vagabondo Footnote. prince gonzaga di castiglione when dining in company with dr johnson thinking it was a polite as well as gay thing to drink the doctor's health with some proof that he had read his works called out from the top of the table to the bottom at your health mr vagabond madame d'arblay says 
General Paoli diverted us all very much by begging leave of Mrs. Thrale to give one toast, and then with smiling pomposity pronouncing the great vagabond. End of footnote. And finding that this minister gave such a proof of his taste, he was all attention to him, and on the first remark which he made, however simple, exclaimed, The ambassador says well, his excellency observes, and then he expanded and enriched the little that had been said in so strong a manner that it appeared something of consequence. Footnote. Very near to admiration is the wish to admire every man willingly gives value to the praise which he receives and considers the sentence passed in his favour as the sentence of discernment End of footnote. End of section forty three